Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast for people who appreciate a purist approach to an international treaty obligation. (laughs) I'm your freshly double vaccinated host, Alex Andreu. Let's meet today's elite panel. Naomi Smith is a show stalwart and chief executive of Best for Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hello, Alex. Naomi, next Wednesday is the five-year anniversary from the EU referendum. Best for Britain has decided to mark the occasion in a quite ingenious way. Tell us about it. Well, what we're doing is we are sending a message of love and hope to our friends and neighbours on the other side of the channel by projecting the names of people who either didn't want to leave the EU or regretted their vote to leave the EU. And we're going to be projecting it onto a landmark in Brussels. And basically, it's just a way for us, five years after the referendum, to remind them that we are not all twats this side of the channel and that there is still (laughs) a lot of love for them here, uh, despite everything the government are doing. And I understand so high has been the demand that you've run out of landmark. Basically, the space is now sold <laughs> yeah, we, out. Okay, so we it has. We, we have actually <laughs> sold out. There's only so much space for names that we can fit into the video. So a massive thank you to everybody who did sign up and who donated as well. If you do still want to support the initiative, you can. Bung us a few quid at bestofwritten.org slash support. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, we, we, of course, didn't make people pay to put their name on. There was a free option. So inevitably, we had lots of huge anuses and film crackens and dildos, but we've weeded those out and we've still got thousands <laughs> thousands of thousands of signatures including some pretty notable uh, names as well so yeah we're very excited about it and i'm um, very hopeful of being able to offer um yeah that message of love and hope to the people that we miss back on the podcast we have tom peck the independent's brilliant political sketch writer hi tom oh thank you very much you've added a word to my job title there unofficial but i'll <laughs> certainly take it tom what did it feel like watching a video of fellow journalist Nick Watt being chased by what looked like a proper lynch mob through Whitehall. I mean, 20 years ago, BBC regular would have been asked for a selfie. How did it get to this? Um, I mean, I can't say as I was especially shocked by it, really. I mean, I can't say as I've got very strong feelings on it. I mean, I, I just think that, if, I mean, you can be certainly be horrified by it or appalled by it, but if you find that video shocking... But to actually be shocked by it, then then people who find that shocking just can't have been paying very close attention to what's been going on in the world. <laughs> which, the is time, which is me all over. Which is me all over, it has to be said. It's, it's unhinged people behaving in an unhinged way. And the world has been steadily going nuts for quite a while. I mean, what is going to be done about it? Like, what, what, what is that? What can be done to prevent the rise and rise and rise of, of poor quality information shared in a way... Uh, on social media that is the, in, in, a, in a deliberate information architecture that is done to inflame and done to anger. Well, 
The first thing that you could arguably do about it is by proper people in public life with an actual public profile to just stop vilifying the BBC. And, mm. and that goes both ways, by the way. I, I imagine a lot of FBPE Twitter listens to this podcast and they're always arriving in my timeline to slag off Laura Koonsberg and tell me she's a Tory stooge and all that. And frankly, they should just grow up because she isn't. Um, and then the, the next phase is some sort of meaningful, meaningful way of regulating social media. And that's what Nick Clegg was off to Facebook to try and do, but he's yet to come up with the goods. I mean, <laughs> I like Nick. Maybe he'll get there, but but it's not promising currently. Oh, I think we can safely assume he won't. <laughs> <laughs> now, on that, Tory MPs lined up again yesterday to bash the BBC. Um, it was a little bit like that scene in Airplane, you know, where there's a an orderly cue for slapping the hysterical woman <laughs> on the plane. Um, I mean, one directly compared the Diana interview to the Iraq war. Um, this was just as Johnson was publicly declaring solidarity with Nick Watt, but basically hasn't this febrile atmosphere been carefully manufactured? Well, yeah, of course. So there are lots of people, um, in, as lots of a very significant wing of the Tory party, who are out to get the BBC, and they're out to get the BBC for ideological reasons, essentially, and 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 power reasons. Now, they they they, you know, they did this last year by asking, um, but with Julian Knight, who was the head of the committee that in, that questioned um, Tony Hall yesterday, by asking ridiculous questions like, "Is the BBC too woke?" I mean, one, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, genuinely asked the new director general, Tim Davey, why there weren't any pictures of Union Jacks in the BBC's annual report, oh, which in the six years of doing my job is genuinely, and I mean this, genuinely the most stupid thing I've heard any MP say <laughs> by far. Um, but, but, what, but what's going on with the, with the Diana stuff, arguably, unfortunately, um, is that the BBC is banged to rights. They made a very, very, very significant mistake and their opponents will... We'll, we'll take any opportunity to get them. I mean, maybe mm. if I was running the BBC, maybe, I don't know, maybe I would be less inclined to self-flagellate in the way that they enjoy. I mean, they, whenever they make a mistake, they, 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 they're, they're never happier than when spending days and days and days and days analysing their error. I mean, it's a trend that I think really began with the voicemail left for, for Andrew Sachs by Russell Brand and, and Jonathan mm. Ross. And now they're, they're now they're never happier than when in self-flagellation mode. And and given that there are powerful forces out to get them, perhaps they should stand up for themselves a bit more. I don't know. We are also delighted to welcome barrister and director of the Good Law Project, Jolian Moom, back to the podcast. Hello, Joe. Hello, Alex. It's been a while. It has been a while. Um, Joe, the GB News Channel launched on Sunday. Its chairman, Andrew Neil, used to regularly greet every drop in readership or viewing figures of other organisations with the motto, go woke, go broke. But a few days since its launch, there's, there's an advertiser stampede for the door. You predicted this some months ago. Have they misjudged UK appetite or tolerance for this sort of output? I mean, I think so. It's very easy to read the newspapers, to look at vibrant debate on social media around um, identity politics and become rather depressed with the direction of travel. But there's an important counter-narrative as well, driven by a very strong and ineluctable logic. And that strong and ineluctable logic is the logic of profit. And I Mm. guess what I'm trying to say is... If you look at prestige brands, none of them 
want to be associated with the punch-down politics that is the mainstay of GB News. They don't see a future in it, but it, I don't think it speaks volumes for the likely success of GB News' as business model. You know, Fox mm. News in the US flourishes not because it can attract advertisers, but because it enjoys huge amounts of um, revenue from, that's right, from cable carriers. Yeah. Um, GB News doesn't have that revenue. It's reliant on advertisers. And I just can't see many brands wanting to be associated with it. Hmm. There is a danger, of course, that if the project is not about profit, but about opening out the Overton window in sort of terrible directions with a crowbar, the financial backers who are bankrolling it at the moment will just continue to do so. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, um, I read a blog, I think, from Legatum. um, And what Legatum was saying was that it wasn't actually just about money. It was also about changing the cultural climate. But, I mean, what you take from that, I think, pretty clearly is that... uh, uh, they're not just motivated by by profit. This week on the show, Hell Hath No Fury Like a Special Advisor Spawned, another blog by Dominic I Kept the Receipts Cummings, means another slew of highly embarrassing revelations. Yay! We take a look at political accountability, or lack thereof, and how organisations like the Good Law Project are battling to hold the government to account. And... As the five-year anniversary of the referendum looms, we ask who are the leave winners who ended up losing, but also are there remain losers who ended up doing quite well? Finally, in the extra bit for Patreon supporters only, is the family anti-vaxxer the new racist uncle? How do we talk to loved ones who are science sceptics? A basic problem for people in politics is that approximately none have the hard skills necessary to distinguish great people from charlatans. Also spracht Dominic Cummings. (laughs) He wrote this in 2016 before deciding to throw his lot in with surely one of the greatest and most easily distinguishable charlatans in political history. Perhaps Dom believed that he could be great enough for both of them. Or perhaps he thought he was so much smarter than Johnson that he could control him entirely. Whatever the thinking, the fallout from their fallout has been Fukushima-like. The latest wave hit our political shores just before we recorded this episode. And our familiar pattern of a long blog post dripping with contempt containing screen grabs, private WhatsApp conversations and incendiary claims. Tom... Cummings explains how unproductive emergency meetings chaired by the PM were because as soon as things got a bit embarrassing, Johnson would ask for the discussion to go offline before shouting forward to victory, doing a thumbs up and pegging (laughs) it out of the room before anybody could disagree. I I find it terrifying. But will it matter to his supporters? Doesn't it just confirm qualities for which... We know they like him. Or is there a tipping point? Well, not, nothing uh, seems to matter to his supporters currently. But the only, the only way in which his supporters go and support somebody else is if they're given a reason to. I mean, that's, that's the oldest fact in politics to a certain extent. We're all stunned by, well, Johnson can do no wrong, but doesn't 
affecting his poll rating. But then the, the only thing that affects someone's poll rating really is if they go off and find somebody else who they, who they like better, and that, that's mm. not happening yet. Um, I, I can't really tell you if anyone if anyone is still shocked by yet more shocking revelations about Boris Johnson being exactly like Boris Johnson. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the thing is that, by the way, the, the idea that Dominic Cummings has um has got a problem with charlatans and has shackled himself to to the greatest charlatan of them all is is one way of looking at it. In my, in my view, the, the more prescient point is that the greatest charlatan of them all by some margin is not Boris Johnson, but Dominic Cummings himself, yeah. who who is just uh, the thing that he loathes, which is a, a blagger with an Oxbridge humanities degree. It's just that Boris Johnson, at least to a certain extent, has the good grace to not pretend to be anything other than that, whereas <laughs> Dominic Cummings imagines himself to be a sort of self-appointed um chief executive of NASA without any of the credentials to back it up, <laughs> apart from having spent a long time in a basement with some books. Um, I mean, he is the grand bluffer of, of them all, the grandest charlatan and the biggest, by some margin, the biggest bullshitter. And here we are being expected to try and work out all these blogs. Are they true? Are they not true? Why is he writing them? Why is he not writing them? I mean, 15 years ago, I, I happened to work with a little while for a little while with a guy, a Serbian guy who had, who had, basically fought on every single side of the Yugoslavian wars of the, of, the, of the early 90s. And whenever he tried to explain to us why, none of us could really understand. It was all too complicated. And all we ever really could conclude is that, you know, we had no idea if he'd won or lost, other than that he'd seen a lot of terrible things, probably done a lot of terrible things. And that's all you can really hope to glean from these Cummings blogs, because mm. you, you don't know what he's trying to achieve. Everybody involved is a proven liar. Liars accusing other people of lying. Liars saying they're not lying, but they were lying then. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. The only person he, see, he seems to have major beef with is Matt Hancock, and he's had major beef with Matt Hancock for years and years and years and years and years. Also, Matt Hancock is the only, may not have covered himself in glory, but it was the only person in the cabinet who spent most of 2020 saying no the only route out of this is a vaccine. We have to essentially keep lockdown until a vaccine arrives. Rishi Sunak, who Cummings has never criticised ever, was the one saying, no, we should unlock now. Mm. Now, I don't know what. And you, your original question was, is this going to affect Boris Johnson's ratings? Well, it is very... It, I mean, I spend my whole life with my nose pressed up against this rubbish, and I don't really understand it. The idea that anybody normal can look at this and try and work out who is lying, who is telling the truth, and why they're doing it. Well, the very, very, very best of luck to them. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that it matters um, because it sounds very true, um, and and often that's enough uh, to get you through the through the threshold. Naomi, uh, Matt Hancock still has arguably the second most important job in all of government during a pandemic. If his boss is calling him fucking useless, <laughs> if that doesn't make him go. What will make him go? I mean, has he not become a huge liability? Is he being saved up to be ritually sacrificed later? What's going on? Well, he serves an incredibly useful purpose. So Matt Hancock is very useful to Boris Johnson right now as something of a human shield. Mm. The more focus, uh, the more the focus is on mistakes made by him as health secretary, the more this takes the heat off the prime minister. And clearly at some point, Johnson is going to have to look to replace Hancock. But it obviously makes sense, I think, for him to keep him in place for the duration of the pandemic that is being handled so appallingly by the UK before installing a fresh face when we're, you know, out of the woods, which which seems like a long way off yet. 
And ultimately, of course, the responsibility for the catastrophic handling of the pandemic should lie firmly with the Prime Minister himself. And Cummings' focus has been on errors made at the early stages of the pandemic, on PPE, on on testing. But let's remember the recent surge that we're seeing right now with the Delta variant is a direct result of the government's failure to secure our borders. And why? All because he wanted India to be able to travel to secure a post-Brexit deal because Brexit has gone so badly for them and they are desperate to be signing those deals. So the blame Mm. for that should lie firmly at his door. What I don't understand is this. Matt Hancock must know this. He must know he's being lined up to take the blame later. So why doesn't he at least choose the timing and manner of his own departure? (laughs) Because when politicians get into roles they tend to cling on for for grim death unfortunately the grim death has been the 130,000 people dead um uh, and uh, you know he would probably want to make sure that his place in history is protected by at least having delivered you know decent vaccine rollout etc even though that isn't necessarily within his purview i think what the whole saga is really showing is that we need a public inquiry and that we need it fast you know Cummings has got a personal agenda. He's gunning for Hancock. He's supportive of Sunak. He is incredibly supportive of Gove. Um, and we just shouldn't allow him, you know, this, this odd man to be dictating how the government's handling of the pandemic is judged by drip feeding handpicked pieces of evidence. Mm. A public inquiry needs to start urgently with access to all the relevant documents and messages that we need to understand what lay behind government decisions who ultimately signed them off um, so that we can expose it. And, you know, I've said it on this show before. Why is it being left to the likes of Cummings to hold this government to account? We need far tougher responses from the official opposition parties uh, on all of this. And they're they're just, you know, not present. Joe, is is our enemy's enemy now our friend? Or is Cummings still labouring to his own agenda? Should progressives, as Tom suggests, be much more cautious about embracing him as a reliable source? Oh, I think it would be a profound error for those opposed to Johnson to align themselves with Cummings. I mean, Cummings is probably the most hated man in the country. I can't think of a worse way to succeed in politics than to uh, align with with him. Um, I mean, I very much agree with Naomi's point that fundamentally Labour needs to develop a narrative. Uh, There was a very... Um, interesting and a somewhat maligned profile of Johnson in the Atlantic last week. Johnson spoke, um, possibly for the first time ever, um, some um, truths that were important to him. Uh, And he put his finger on something that I think um, he's right about, which is that people believe in stories. They believe in beliefs. They don't any longer have interest in facts, and they've lost interest in facts because they experience the world as very complicated. I also experience the world as very complicated. And the the natural consequence is to place your trust in narratives and in anecdotes um, and in in values. Um, and, and, And Labour offers none of those um Johnson does and the stories that Cummings is telling about Johnson feed 
Johnsonian narrative, a narrative mm-hmm. I think that helps him of a man. They, who they is still build. They still sort of build up the legend, uh, whether by boosting him or detracting him in a way. No one knows whether Cummings is telling the truth or Johnson mm-hmm. is telling the truth, and no one knows whether Johnson was doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Really, I mean, some of us think we do, but I'm not at all convinced we do. Um, but what people will take from those anecdotes if they take anything is that Boris Johnson is very funny and you know all of us um, much though we might dislike admitting it um, like people who amuse us. Hmm. Naomi one of the things however which may become an inconvenience for Johnson contained in this blog is this notion that he has a clear plan to leave a couple of years after the next election in order to make money and have fun. That is a complication, isn't it? Because the press will be asking about it now. And and it wasn't something that was on their radar before. But that does complicate his next campaign, does it not? I, I think it does. I think questions over how long Johnson wants to stay in post could be pretty damaging to his premiership and might, as you mentioned, be more significant in the long term than the explosive allegations about calling Matt Hancock fucking hopeless. Um, And this could be the real threat to his authority because it will start to raise questions in the Conservative Party about whether he should be the one to lead them into the next election. Now, remember, when David Cameron ruled outstanding for a third term in 2015, That set in motion the events which ultimately led to the Brexit vote in 2016, with Boris Johnson seeing backing Brexit as his clearest route to becoming PM. And we're already seeing manoeuvres among those jostling Mm. for the party leadership. It's not exactly a secret that Sunak is widely tipped. But if there's one thing we know about Johnson is that he knows how to dodge awkward questions from the media using all of that usual bluff and bluster. So I'd expect him to bat away journalists that ask him about this. Uh, And I I think, therefore, that the real threat to him on this isn't going to come from the media, but from within his own party. Tom, presumably, if the WhatsApp exchanges are fake, number 10 will say so, but I, I I suspect they are genuine. Well, number 10 have refused to have, have, have declined to well, deny that they are faked. So that, that they have essentially been confirmed that they are real. But as, um, as Naomi says, they're partial, aren't they? They're, they're, yeah, they're of course. But one of the things that does jump out at me from those exchanges is how, how little agency... Johnson has in those conversations to the extent to which he looked to Dominic Cummings for, you know, a sense of what should I do? What, give me an idea. What should I do? Who occupies that position of his guru now? Is it another advisor? Is it a senior colleague? Is it Carrie? Is it a combination of all those? Is it another option that might allow me to sleep tonight? Yeah, well, Eddie Lister has quit as well, hasn't he? I mean, he's always yeah. been a, a delegator because he's he's quite um, lazy. But but, but lazy is the wrong word because you don't get to become prime minister by by being lazy. But he's very um, he, he always listens to other people's suggestions. And when he got he has the co- confidence in someone, he's much happier just delegating the whole lot to them and letting them have ownership of it yeah. rather than rather than being a micromanager like other like previous prime ministers were and I think, arguably I think worse is, ones. I think he's lazy on the things he doesn't care about. Yeah. I, so I, I, I think sense. he has lazy yeah. traits. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. works yeah. hard he works hard at the things that interest him but loses 
uh, attention. Yeah, I, mean, I think his biographer like Andrew Andrew Jimson called him an idle workaholic or something like that, didn't <laughs> which I think is a that's perfect, a good, a good phrase. Yeah, yeah. Um, so who I, is that person now? Well, who is replacing Dominic Cummings in? Who has replaced Dominic Cummings in number ten? Well, they've got this guy Dan Rosenfeld, but I don't really know what he does. But the point is that Dominic Cummings was only really in number ten to do his own thing, and his, the only thing the thing that he wanted to do is sort of rebuild Whitehall as a, as a tech startup and do it by frightening everybody. I mean, he's been so obsessive about doing that for so long that he essentially thought that Brexit, by any means necessary, pouring the public realm full of poison, was a necessary step to take to get there. So the fact that there is nobody really in number 10 hell-bent on, on this mad project anymore doesn't mean that somebody else has to come along and fill the Cummings vacuum because the Cummings vacuum, the, the Cummings world was only his own private obsessions anyway. Um, I, I mean, I, who, is, who is sort of running the COVID response now that he's not doing all these WhatsApps with Dominic Cummings? Well, arguably people who should have been running it in the first place, the civil service doing their job, but, but they are continually maligned by Dominic Cummings who, who has maligned them for 20 years and then in, in his, in, according to his own account, arrives in, in this in this powerful position just to witness them at their most useless and have has his own <laughs> beliefs confirmed. Well, everybody in life goes about having their own beliefs confirmed, don't they? Um, yes. Hope for the if, if the... if the government has been improving, and certainly I think there is a perception among the public that it's been doing a better job this year than last, then arguably it's because the people doing are doing the things that they should be doing, are just doing them and not being maligned by, by an obsessive weirdo who has been quite rightly got rid of. They don't need a, a replacement guru, though. I mean, the Conservative Party is still um, the Conservative Party. It's the sort of um, sex pistols of politics, right? They don't know what they want, but they know how to get it. Um, the, the project at the moment feels to me um, about and only about staying in, in power. So they don't actually need to have... And I don't think they do have any policy objects. I mean, even Brexit wasn't a policy object. Um, they didn't know what they wanted it for. They're now um, vaguely trying to um, backfill some some narrative. But I don't really sense any any real interest in it. No one's talking about the benefits of, of Brexit because no one really believes that there are any. It was enough that uh, they articulated mm. a sense of loss of agency across the country um, uh, and through it Johnson won the premiership uh, and then won a general election but what to do with Brexit um, as what to do with um, uh, uh, this term and no doubt the next as well uh, are questions I think that are much more difficult because you have mm. to know what you believe in and I don't think Johnson does. The sex pistols filling the Cummings vacuum sounds like a very wrong fetish. <laughs> no kink shaming here. <laughs> One of the sadly predictable consequences of Brexit has been that we got saddled with a completely untrammeled hard right government that has no respect for any standards, norms or conventions. Shout out to the Lexit posse, who was certain that leaving the EU would bring about the socialist utopia. Well played, lads. 
With opposition still trying to find its feet, much of the pushback on corruption and overreach has come from outside players, like the Good Law Project, the Marcus Rashford of campaigning organizations. <laughs> and our guest today just happens to be its founder and director. Joe, how was the Good Law Project born? It was born in a grump, Alex. I was grumpy. I was, those who follow me on Twitter will not surprise to hear I was grumpy. I was grumpy about uh, the lack of opposition to Brexit from the Corbyn-led Labour Party. Mm. And I sensed that people were losing trust in um, parliamentary democracy and wanted some other route to change. Now, you you have just won not one, but two cases which found that ministers acted unlawfully in the award of contracts. Can you tell us a little bit about them? It was pretty clear to us that government was failing to publish contracts, sometimes for tens or hundreds, possibly even billions of pounds um, for PPE and also for test and trace. Um, and we believed that they were holding back those contracts because they contained awkward information. And we mm. um, sued Matt Hancock uh, for breach of his clear and unconditional obligation. Uh, and we won. Uh, it's a very important part of the compact between the government uh, and the people whose money the government spends, that the government should tell the people how they're spending it and with whom. And I thought it was pretty serious, actually, that the government showed little interest in doing so. Mm. Um, we then brought a whole series of further judicial reviews around um, substantive awards of contracts, very often to those with close political connections to the Conservative Party, um, the first of those to be heard was the award by Michael Gove's department of a contract to Public First, who Dominic Cummings described in evidence as his friends, without any real consideration of whether or not Public First was the right person to get that contract. Um, we won that case too, uh, and we have... I don't know, we've probably got a dozen um, lined up to follow. You wrote recently that when ministers break the law and they don't apologise or resign to the outside world, it looks as though they have lost all interest in whether their actions are lawful or not. But they seem to wear that as a badge of honour. How do you counteract that? Well, this all does go back, actually, to the referendum campaign and the breaches of campaign spending um, the whole of the English constitution, I'm a little reluctant to dignify it with <laughs> that grand word, is erected on a premise that politicians won't do things that carry political cost. Uh, and so they don't need to be subject to black letter regulation. And, and what we learned in the referendum actually was that that constitutional setup um, wasn't enough. You actually needed punishments that mattered um, for lawbreaking. So now, um, rather than responding with public apologies or uh, expressions of contrition or resignations, government is rude about the court, pretends that it succeeded in litigation where it lost, 
misrepresents um, the finding of the court. So Michael gave in an interview with Kay Burley yesterday, lied, I mean, flat out lied about what the court had decided in public first. And, and so you get to this point again of what does it matter now for politicians to be caught breaking the law? And what happens to a country where politicians no longer see any cost attached to lawbreaking. Where does that country end up? It's a, it's not a, a cheering road uh, no. that we find ourselves walking down. Jolien, you've, you've promised us that there are going to be more uh, cases in the pipeline. Can you give us a flavour of, of what's next for the Good Law Project? So the next hearing is in relation to uh, another award of a contract by Michael Gove's department to another agency closely associated with the Vote Leave team, Hanbury. Uh, That contract um, and that fact pattern is uglier by far than um, confronted the court in the public first case. Mm. We are waiting for the result of our challenges to enormous contracts awarded to a small pest control specialist to a company connected to an advisor to Liz Truss and to a confectionery wholesaler in Northern Ireland, each of which won contracts worth more than £100 million. Wow. Um, we have an extraordinary case which bears all the hallmarks, um, I think, of an appropriate case for investigation by the Serious Fraud Office, and we're going to be referring it to the Serious Fraud Office very shortly. Um, we've had wow. four separate Um, leaks of information in relation to that contract. Um, I mean, I could go on. There are... uh, Okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Forget I asked. You're you're, you're definitely, definitely busy. Uh, I'm also really interested in where you think the pushback from government is going to come and what form it's going to take. Obviously, at Best for Britain, you know, during the the years after uh, the referendum, we were supportive as we could be financially of some of the court cases that that were successful. Um, And we are very aware that there is this sort of threat hanging over us, like the sort of Damocles that um, judicial review Will, will be axed and things like that. If so, is there is there some kind of contingency? Uh, is there any possible action at the ECHR level we could take? I mean, what, what routes would be open to us if if they do go, you know, for the judiciary in the way that they've been going for other areas of our civil society? I don't think they will. I don't think they have appetite yet. And I don't think they have yet in civil society support for meaningful attacks on judicial review. Um, We are not um, heading in a good direction, obviously. I mean, it was really, really striking to me about 10 days ago when a government spokesperson got really stuck into me in an article uh, reported in the Mail on Sunday. I mean, for the Mail on Sunday to come after me is, you know, well, it's kind of every day, really. But for a government spokesperson to come after me, I thought was really quite remarkable. Um, I mean, it was a great compliment in a way. You know, you want to be the itch that they feel the need publicly to scratch. Um, if you're not that itch, you're not having an impact. Finally, Joe, how can people support the Good Law Project? Fundamentally, what we're focused on at the moment is trying to uh, reach more people and trying to reach a different mix of people as well. So 
Uh, our mailing list at the moment, it's about 200,000. Um, we really want to focus on growing it in the next um, year or so. Obviously, we're reliant on the public for our funding. Um, over 95% of our funding comes from small donations from members of the public. We have virtually no meaningful big donors. And we're very, very grateful for the financial support that I imagine many of the listeners uh, of this podcast um, give to us. Thank you. Thank you. Britain wanted to be independent, unchained. Well, in the words of the heavies, how do you like me now? Next week marks the fifth anniversary of the referendum on the UK membership of the EU. Frankly, we're tired of self-flagellating with what went wrong and how did we get here features, and there is only so much pleasure to be squeezed out of doing told ya with every story that economic sector imploding. So we decided to do something different today. What were the unexpected consequences, the stuff people on both sides didn't really see coming? And no, I will not allow a global pandemic as an answer. <laughs> who are the vote leave winners who ended up losing? Who are the Ramona losers who have done quite well? What aspects of leaving the EU have gone worse than even the most pessimistic Europhile predicted? And which bits of Brexit upheaval have actually been smoother than we feared? Tom, how about you? Which aspects of Brexit unexpectedly delighted you? Uh, well, if you couch it like that, I might struggle for an answer. But certainly, <laughs> I would say that the vote leave losers. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. How about Boris Johnson? Um, Prime Minister, though he is, all of his dreams come true, yet um, sitting there in Downing Street, showing, being found utterly wanting in the face of a challenge which he is unimaginably unsuited to, and which brings you seamlessly on to the next Vote Leave loser, which is Dominic Cummings, who, five years on, <laughs> is back in his basement firing out blogs about how government won't work and how all the problems about the all oh, everything needs to be rebuilt in this way and yet he had the job for a year and frankly couldn't do it so will, will he be wondering whether or not all this was worth it given he is literally back where he started and on the subject of vote leave mm. winners maybe maybe the likes of george osborne who had things gone slightly differently it might be them wading through this unimaginable river of shit in number 10. And oh, instead, good, I'd forgotten about striding, George Instead, he is striding around the world, coining it in, may, editing newspapers. That's a good point. What, doing whatever he likes. And frankly, maybe doing what Boris Johnson would rather be doing. Failing up. <laughs> that, that, uh, I like that thought. Joe, is there something that uh, you were dreading that turned out to be just Project Fear? It's not a terribly interesting thing to say, but obviously um, the economic effects of Brexit have been masked by um, the pandemic. Uh, I mean, I don't think that the narrative around economic collapse has been borne out by the reality that we can see. Of course, Remainers... Uh, are not a monolith, and some of them identified at the time that that wasn't a particularly helpful way to be mm. to be talking. Mm. Naomi, who are your unforeseen winners and losers? 
Well, I mean, on the unforeseen winners, I think we need to overlook the fact that I was never booked onto a podcast before the 2016 referendum. Um, <laughs> so it's all <laughs> but worth gonna... it. It's all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go for Nicola Sturgeon and then Celtic nationalists in general. After losing the independence referendum and with the issue seemingly put to bed for a generation, Brexit, of course, has breathed new life into the SNP's race on Dutcher and has given Nicola Sturgeon an extremely powerful argument that life-changing decisions are being made for the Scottish people against their expressed vote and with very little consideration for their welfare. And, of course, similar things can be said for the nationalists and non-aligned parties in Northern Ireland Mm. too. Uh, You know, for Sinn Féin and the SDLP, a border poll is very much back on the agenda. The Alliance Party are going to hoover up some votes from the DUP's more moderate wings and are probably not sorry to see them falling apart given their absolute catastrophic error in supporting Brexit uh, and then that baffling strategy of voting against every option that would have actually given Northern Ireland any kind of soft landing from it and a brexit winner hoist for their own petard you know definitely the dup fishermen uh half of the erg etc etc <laughs> you know all, all of them but but if we come back to the dup i think it really has to be them you know they 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 held the whip hand at westminster for three years not once did they think it might be smart to lean on the government to agree something that would have protected them uh, and now they're they're reaping the whirlwind all this internal to- turmoil in the party expected to have bad assembly elections next year happening within the next 10 months if not sooner and to see it happen to a party that stood in the way of lgbt rights abortion rights you know is actually quite gratifying breaks your heart doesn't it breaks your heart (laughs) (laughs) but but what isn't of course is is the damage being done to northern ireland in the process and i think the, the the one other thing i think sort of thinking about this question what has been worse for Britain as a result is is really you know even worse than than those of us you know accused of peddling project fear mm. um believe is that the damage to our international reputation has been pretty catastrophic. The brexit vote itself was damaging enough, and we you know might have hoped that the government would have handled the aftermath with a degree of grace and decorum. Um, which, of course, the British Diplomatic Service is famous for around the world. But the way it was handled has been unforgivable. Um, and the past five years have been incredibly damaging to our international standing and the trust mm. between us and our closest allies. So, you know, now our desperation to sign any trade deal, no matter the cost, is making Britain look like an international closing down yeah. sale. And it's, it's pretty we embarrassing. We are now a supplicant state. Um Naomi, last weekend at the G7 summit, I mean, even according to friendly news outlets, Johnson managed to snatch partial defeat from the jaws of easy victory by basically briefing against one of the other leaders. Um, is this a moment of more peril for the UK standing in the world than people realise, certainly than, than the government realises? Look, with, with the eyes of the world on us as hosts, this end of show dig at one of our closest allies, it, it was petty at best despite everything that was said in the lead-up, Biden, Macron and the other G7 were willing to give Johnson an easy ride about Northern Ireland during the summit. But true to form, there isn't a favourable situation that our Prime Minister cannot royally screw up. We needed to show that we were reliable international partners. And this snide dig was, 
uh, as Stephen Fry might say, the, mm. the crowning turd in the water pipe when it came to the summit <laughs> itself. Um, and, and with Trump in the rearview mirror, the G7 was billed as you know the moment when democracies were to show they were up to the challenge of leading the world and facing you know the biggest challenge, of course, any of us can remember with, with the COVID crisis. And instead, we've got this real lack of ambition on climate and a seriously inadequate commitment on donating vaccines. I think they have committed a billion when really we, we need 11 billion uh, just to be able to do 70% of, of the human race. Um, and I don't know if you, you know, you saw Rob describe Macron as offensive. Yes, no, yes but, but Rob, I mean, let's, yeah, yeah, who yeah, listens yeah, yeah. to Rob? I mean, like he didn't know about the importance of Dover. Right? I have so. to say, as a Greek person, the thing that struck me the most was how unhostly it was. Yeah. It, it was an incredible thing to do for the host of a summit, and especially this summit after that period of turbulence, to basically go to the papers and say shitty things about an ally. I mean, I just don't get it. Tom, at the NATO summit that followed, putting aside the fact Johnson arrived like he had tumbled out of the back of a cement mixer, he seemed to suggest that the protocol he signed was an attack on the UK's territorial integrity and maybe NATO should be interested. Now, is it not daft to infect big summits like that with little squabbles? Or is there actually a clever diplomatic logic to it in that it pushes the UK's agenda up the the ranking? Well, I don't suppose Boris Johnson particularly cares um, which side of the two options you've just um, laid out he falls down upon. He's far more interested in the... In <laughs> you don't the, um, think there was much 4D chess going on? Then? Well, I, I, I think he's only interested in how Brexit is perceived at home um, and not internationally at all, as has been sort of discussed at length over the... Well, a few times in a few different ways over the last hour. Um, he only really he sees Brexit as a narrative, doesn't he? As, as Britain and mm. taking back control, um, and there is no and, and and other people see it as 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 a problem or a process or or or, or, or a new state of affairs. Now, mm. the Northern Ireland Protocol um, is a mess, but it's not the protocol that's the problem. It's Brexit that's the problem. Five years on, there is no solution to the problem because there, there, there just is not a solution to having um, a completely open border between two different customs regimes. So you just have to dance around it. You just have to put spin on it. You just have to dress it up in a different way, come up with a new line, deny it exists as they denied there was a hard border in the ROC, even while they're implementing the infrastructure to do it. It's all just, 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 just a way in which it can be portrayed. And then they'll need a new way further down the line because the problem cannot be solved. And this is the best solution they could come up with. Mm. Joe, this week is also the five-year anniversary of the political assassination of Labour MP Joe Cox. And I describe it like that because that is precisely what it was. And to not say it was is, in my view, to disrespect her. We all recognise instinctively the wisdom in her words that more unites us than divides us. But with powerful forces in this country, in politics, business, the media, who actively derive their power from focusing on what divides us, how do we break that vicious cycle? Well, that's, um, that's the question that progressives <laughs> have failed to answer for generations. There is no easy answer. I suspect that it is in 
seeing greater peril um, that the best hope for progressive alignment lies. But such is the sort of vigour and toxicity of some of the debates uh, around some issues of identity politics that I I can't think of um, some greater peril that will cause those who think of themselves as progressives to put their differences aside. Um, but I think if there is any hope, it is in it is in that 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 peril. Now it's time to answer a question from the Oh God What Now fanatics in But Your Emails. This week, Patreon backer JB asks, I'm enjoying Euro 2020, and not just because it's got Euro in the name, (laughs) although I was really shocked at the lack of social distancing at the Hungary-Portugal game. However, this pales next to the super spreader event that could be the Tokyo Olympics. What are they thinking? Should it be cancelled? And will it be cancelled? Now, Tom, you used to be an Olympics correspondent. That's right, isn't it? How fortuitous. Uh, I, I was, yes. What, what is the feeling in your waters on this? Will the Games go ahead or, or not? Or is there a case for them to go ahead? Uh, do people need the escape? Um, I think they will go ahead. Um, I think it's all they're at the point where they will not really be able to prevent, prevent them from going ahead, even though the... Japanese people don't seem to want them to go ahead. It's just an almighty mess. I mean, I, it's it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely. Can you imagine how it would how this country would have felt if this had, had happened to us? As I understand it, contractually, whether this giant event goes on or not is entirely at the discretion of the AOC. And if the Japanese government introduces any measures that make the game impossible, they will be liable for enormous amounts of money. Yeah, I mean, it's a mess. But the the, the IOC um, and FIFA and these very powerful sporting supranational organisations have their ways of doing business. They're pretty bleak, but they're pretty um, they're pretty totalitarian. Mm. Um, they 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 deal with some difficult countries. So so yeah, they, 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 they these international bodies do have to deal with every stripe of government. So they do have to have a pretty robust way of doing things. In the same way that it was for London, if there's some reason you can't put it on, then you have to shell out for the lost costs. Mm. Um, so it is an almighty mess. And of course, the trouble with the Olympics is, is it's not like a, a football tournament where there's where there's you know a few hundred competitors. The Olympics has what fifteen thousand people have yeah. to come and take part in it. I, I think it. the last estimate I saw was twenty two thousand. If you if you include sort of all the journalists and the staff. Yeah, well, the... no one cares about journalists, yeah. do they? Don't worry about them. <laughs> but frankly, I I hope they do go ahead. Um, although although that is in some ways disrespectful to the people of Japan who to who appear to not want them to go ahead. Well, that's, that's... it is it is a it, it's a. It's a horrible, horrible situation. But that's the thing, Naomi, if the games do go ahead and then we get horrific consequences Mm. health-wise in Japan, what will that do to the reputation of the games? It doesn't seem to me very (laughs) Olympian ideal. No, I mean, if we just sort of have a a moment to think about where we are right now, I mean, today we are at an inflection point in global cases. And Japan has currently low COVID case numbers, and they're going to be having athletes descending from all across the world, including from countries where very, very few vaccines have as yet been administered. And then they may potentially take an Olympic variant back with them to their home nation. So it's incredibly worrying. I would 
definitely be cautioning against it if I had any say in the matter whatsoever. Um, and, and when you talk about reputation, I don't know that the IOC necessarily care. I mean, the, the revenue, as I understand it, from the games is really through broadcast rights and sponsorship rather than you know ticket sales and things like that. So I'm that not sure correct, they would yeah. they would they would matter much. It, it would matter much to them if there weren't many spectators there. So I suppose there is a way it could go ahead without spectators, and so it's then just the athletes who can get tested, you know, twice a day or whatever it, it, it is needed to. If there, if there are no the spectators, it is the Japanese government that loses the cash, um, not right, the IOC. Right. right. Oh God. And it sounds like they would potentially be. Yeah, because the ticket sale, the ticket, the ticket sales um, go back into the budget that gets spent by the um, by the host country. The legacy fund, yeah. There's your answer, JB, and that's the show. Many thanks to Naomi. Thank you very much, Tom. Thanks a lot, and to our special guest, Jolian Morm. Thank you so much for having me on. In this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be looking at strategies our panelists have developed to deal kindly but firmly with anti-vaxxer loved ones. Back <laughs> as for as little as £2 a month to hear the full episode, you'll get a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the roll call of our latest backers. Hello from me and thanks to Pat McKeegan, George May, Erin Dillon, FC and Aleiron. Many thanks from me to Joanna Clark, Jill Seller, Mary Alverstead, Colnais Howard and Adam Hartley. And finally, best wishes from me to Kurt Forrester, James O'Leary, Philip Henderson, Liz Moore and Dave Stone. Forward to victory! Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Andrew Harrison and the assistant producers Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofronovic. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Finally, have you had to deal with lockdown sceptics or straight-up anti-vaxxers in your immediate sphere? Is the cousin refusing to get their jab the racist uncle for the 2020s? Do you get round-robin emails from a work colleague that purport to be things undefined they are trying to hide from you? How do we talk to loved ones who have drunk the Kool-Aid and reclaim them from the dark side? Naomi, have you had dealings with anyone like that? I thankfully and mercifully haven't had too many, but I do have one relative who's actually very young. You know, in your intro, you talked about uh, racist uncles and, and, and things like that. It's actually, a, you know, a younger member of the family in their 20s who consumes a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show all the time, these conspiracy theory videos that are often uh, fed to younger men. That was the trailer for the Extra Time edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>